Like so many times in the Jewish calendar, we are reminded to take our time and our attention and our space before we get there. A lot of times, right before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, in fact, the day before, a lot of Jews wake up and remember it's Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, even though there's an entire month of Elul to prepare us spiritually before it. The same thing, I believe, is true for Passover, which is that usually on the day before Passover, people wake up and they go to look for matzah at Safeway. It's gone. <laughs> then they go to Costco and they think that Costco's anti-Semitic because all the matzah is gone. Because... Well, there's never enough matzah in the Bay Area. That's one lesson, so get there next week. The second one is you can never be too spiritually prepared for anything. And in this week's Torah portion, Shmini, we're encouraged to really deepen and create richer spiritual lives. Aaron's sons, Nadav and Avihu, who are the priests in training, said that they were going to take the offering that their father had always offered and shown them how to offer, and they were gonna do it on their own. And God had not instructed Nadav and Avihu to go into the Holy of Holies and offer the offering. God had only instructed Aaron the high priest. And so when Nadav and Avihu approached the Holy of Holies and go into the altar with their, what they called foreign incense, or Esh Zarah, strange fire, uh, God smote them. There's a lot of instances where people are smote in the Bible, this is a big one. They came too close to God, and it said that a fire came out of the altar and actually went into their nostrils and smote them. It does sound like an Indiana Jones movie, but I think that's where they got it from, was this idea of the power of God and somehow getting too close to the holy would catch you on fire, if not physically, then in some ways spiritually or symbolically. The commentators offer many explanations about why Nadav and Avihu died. First of all, they entered the Holy of Holies without being asked. They were not wearing the requisite garments. They took fire instead of from the altar, from the kitchen and brought it there. They didn't consult with their father Aaron or their uncle Moses. They didn't consult one another. And according to some, they were actually guilty of hubris. They were impatient to become the high priests themselves. But the simplest explanation is that they died because they offered literally strange fire, meaning that it was not commanded of them to get that close to the presence of God. Now, there's many different ways of understanding this Esh Zarah, this foreigner alien fire, but it is different, or the intention to bring it was different and not commanded. And in the Torah, when punishments are enacted by God, they're there to serve as a model for our present and our future behavior and to point out a different way for us to understand our relationship to God. Nadav and Avihu were already on a spiritual path. They were inducted early as the sons of the high priest. They had been watching their father, the Kohen Gadol. They had been participating as junior priests in the spiritual practices of the Israelite people. And here we are in the middle of the Torah, in Leviticus, in Parshat Shmini, and we are living a very simple life, a nomadic life as a tribe. We are living in Sukkot along the way on our 40-year journey. And all of our spiritual reckoning and the way that we relate to God comes from the people to the priest to God as the intermediary. That was our original experience. It was quite simple. Nadav and Avihu already had a deep spiritual practice, but I don't think that is what Shmini is talking to us about because we have the opposite problem. Now, I'm not talking to all of you. It's like preaching to the choir. You already have a spiritual practice, I know, because you're here. This is part of your spiritual practice, Shabbat. Shabbat. 
Now, we are not encouraged to be priests in training. We're encouraged to fill ourselves in our society with things, with material and physical belongings that give us a lot of comfort and in our society give us status. We live in a very material world, and if you remember the song by Madonna, and I am a material girl. Now, I'm not going to be holier than thou. I love my material stuff just as much as anybody else here, but as I get older, I'm starting to examine what is that relationship with our stuff due to our spiritual lives. In this portion, God tells the people, I'm holy, so you will be holy. And synagogues, our homes, places where we learn Torah, are called mikdash me'at, or a tiny holy space. And I think Shmini is pointing to a world that we live in now where we don't have a lot of time or space and where we are very connected to the physical. And sometimes we forget that the physical and the material world takes us away from our spiritual or our holy life. Do you live a holy life? People are going like this to me. Well, it's a strange word because you don't really talk about it in your everyday life. What does it mean? Sacred, different, elevated, spiritual? Do you have a holy place? Think about it. Do you have a place that feels sacred or special to you? It might not even be physical. It might be something inside yourself. And then ask yourself, how often do you get to that spiritual place? Probably not as much as you deserve to be. I recently bought a book that everybody had been talking about for a long time. I usually have about 10 books at my bedside, and I get to two of them, and then the other eight go into you know, that pile um, that you take on vacations, and then you bring them back, and you still haven't read them. So I thought it would be helpful if I got the New York Times bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo. Uh, Rabbi Fenves mentioned earlier um, that every few years there's some incredible Buddhist philosophy that comes in, it sweeps the nation. Um, and this swept the nation, um, and I thought it was too long to read. <laughs> um, so I got the, uh, the first page, and the entire book is based on one line in here which says, start by discarding, then organize your space thoroughly, completely in one go. That's the whole book, you don't need to buy it. So you're right, Rabbi Fenvis, every once in a while, a whole Buddhist philosophy embodies our nation and we start thinking about simplicity and about meditating. And as many of you know, 12 years ago, my brother moved to the Abayagiri Buddhist monastery in Ukiah. He had been practicing Buddhism and he wanted to see what it would be like to live as a monk. He has been a Theravadan Thai forest monk for the last 12 years. So 12 years, um, 12 years ago, he arrived at that monastery. And 12 years later, I now say he arrived there because for the first year, I took it very, first few years, I took it very personally. And I would say, it's been a few years since he left us. I did, I took it very personally, spiritually, and as my brother. By that I meant us, his family, and us, he left Judaism. Now if you wanna have a spiritual reckoning or a spiritual crisis, you can usually rely on one of your family members to incite that, right? <laughs> In my case, my brother's spiritual journey became entwined with mine. I thought, how crazy, how crazy is he? As I watched him give away every single material possession he had ever, ever owned, and we all participated in the ritual of shaving his head before he went into the monastery. I mean, this guy, he was materialistic. He had some really good stuff. 
And you know what else? He had really good hair. But I reacted. He was abandoning our family. Didn't he see how incredible Judaism was? And it's taken me a long time to come full circle. When I first visited him at the monastery, I was mystified. He had no car, no money, no clothes, no belongings, no credit card, no girlfriend. He lived in something called a kuti, which reminded me of the sukkah, a tiny room with a tiny heater and a mat on the floor where he actually spent three months a year in complete silence meditating, and the other nine months teaching and learning with the other monks and meditating and eating in silence. Now, eating in silence is perhaps the most difficult thing I have ever attempted to do. It's like the least Jewish part of Buddhism. So when I visit my brother now, I have let go of my judgment. I've let go of my judgment, but I have to admit I've moved into a place of a slight envy. I still live almost entirely in the material world, and I have a lot of work to do to leave it. My stuff, my money, my phone, my car, my computer, and just to get away from it and be by myself. Being spiritually present takes space and time and a lot of effort, and my brother has all three, and much of my life I feel that I'm fighting to put the effort into creating time and space for my spiritual life, and I'm a rabbi. I have an app to help me meditate, he just meditates. And so instead of an adversary or somebody whose religion I make fun of in a judgmental, snarky, Jewish humor kind of way, my brother has actually become a spiritual mentor to me. I no longer make fun of his extremes. I understand what they give him. Now, I'll never move to a monastery. I'll never live in solitude. And I will never eat in silence. But I am going to take him as a role model and that one line from Marie Kondo and continue to let go of stuff. And in doing so, that physical, spiritual part gets opened up. There really is something to letting go of your physical stuff that will give you some spiritual space. Finally, when I became a rabbi here 21 years ago, my son was in the first twos program in our preschool. And slowly but surely, with two boys, our house started to fill up with the stuff that naturally accumulates when you have kids. And then about five minutes ago, well, five minutes after preschool started, it seemed, they were going to college. You guys know what I mean, right? Without their stuff. <laughs> because their stuff and all of mine was going to stay in the house where they grew up. Now, being an empty nester never sounded that good to me. And uh, does it sound good, that word? Empty nester? It's, we're reclaiming it. I learned from the first lady of our congregation, Alan Grenitz is the president of our board, his wife is affectionately known as the first lady, Susie Grenitz. She said, we aren't empty nesters, we are free birds. <laughs> Don't you love that? We're free birds. So I waited for about six months into having no kids in the house, and I did it. At that point, I hadn't even heard of Marie Kondo. But I got rid of all the stuff. I donated it. I recycled it. I gave it to people who needed it. When I got in there, we had seven bicycles. Two kids, why do we have seven bicycles? And now, there's just one. It's like a miracle. Who needs seven bicycles? I went, to, I went to Home Depot and I gave each one of my sons a huge storage container in the garage, and I got rid of everything else of mine that I wouldn't be taking with me the next time I moved or when I permanently moved. You know what I mean? And so I am very proud to say that I have six pieces of furniture that are in my house that matter to me. Six pieces, that's it. It took three months of purging. 
Now, I still have all of my kids' art projects and photos, and I save stuffed animals for the grandchildren I'm going to have eventually. Um, but I just have to tell you something unbelievable about our stuff. The United States of America has 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space. 2.3 billion square feet. That's more than all of the McDonald's in the entire world. It's enough space for every man, woman, and child to physically stand underneath a total canopy of space. Every man, woman, and child. That's how much stuff is stored somewhere and people are paying for it. And as a rabbi, after working with families who have lost their loved ones and seeing the estate sales and children and grandchildren who are burdened with stuff and the time it takes to take care of all of it when they're going through grief, I decided to actually read a little bit more of the Marie Kondo book and listen to my brother and listen and read Shmini. So I'm still a material girl. If you give me a compliment of my earrings or my boots, I'll say thank you. I like my stuff, but the world and my spiritual life need so much less of it, and so do I. I've moved from material maximalism to spiritual minimalism. If there's one thing that Shmini encourages each one of us to do is to let go of some of our stuff, and only you know what the stuff is that I'm talking about, to create space for that mikdash me'at, that to totally tiny holy space for yourself. I know a lot of you have other things planned to do this weekend, but take that time this weekend for this year's pre-Pesach spring cleaning and start to give something away, donate it or recycle it, and you are not going to believe it, because you know what I found out? I can fit a car in my garage. Shabbat shalom.